Hello, and welcome to Two Friends Talk History. My name is Ophia, and I'm a public historian fascinated by the exploration of history from researchers, practitioners, academics, and more. With so many interesting things to learn about the past, I'm so glad you're joining me on this journey. With each episode, I invite a guest to discuss aspects of history that they're involved with or curious about and why it matters in a section called So What? If you would like to find out more about the show, see episode blogs and reading lists, and much more, you can check out my website, archaeoartist.com. Thank you to members who have already joined my Patreon. Your support keeps this podcast going and ad-free. Today, I'm joined by the Aphrodite to my Isis and returning champion to Two Friends Talk History, Dr. Brianna King. Welcome back, Brianna. Thank you. It's wonderful to be back. Dr. King recently completed her doctorate at St. Andrews in classics, working on the cult of Aphrodite, but as well, ideas about sex, sexuality, gender, and violence. So she has a very rounded and interesting, quite titillating specialty. One of the things we've done together in the past, which I thought would be really interesting to explore again on the podcast, is discuss classical reception. You know, we've had presentations and conferences about it, kind of focusing on different elements. So we're going to do something different this time. In this episode, the tables have turned and Dr. King will be interviewing me as I talk about different aspects of classical reception studies and the history of the classical reception of art as it pertains to some of the topics we're going to talk about in the modern era. So I'm going to give us a bit of a background on where these ideas came from, who was shaping them and forming them into the ways we kind of understand them now and where things seem to be moving. Our first episode is going to be tackling this foundational background information on classical reception. After this, we're going to tackle other elements of classical reception, and we hope that you find this mini-series and two friends interesting. But it will be interspersed throughout other episodes with upcoming guests. There's a lot of really exciting interviews coming up, so I'm really looking forward to sharing those with you. That's my PSA. Thank you so much, and I hope you enjoy. All right, let's get to it. So what is classical reception, you may ask? Well, it can take many forms. For instance, Dr. King has an upcoming publication on the classical reception of violence and sexuality in modern film and television for ACTA, Instituti Romani Finlandiae, the Journal of the Finnish Institute of Rome. Whereas in 2021, I received the British School of Athens Artist Travel Award to do foundational research and create a classically inspired Receive a webcomic called Ritualia, which looks at visualizations of ancient ritual through material culture and landscape. We will both go into these projects at greater depth throughout the podcast, but what these two seemingly quite disparate projects have in common is they are both part of a long tradition of classical reception. What is classical reception? Well, Lorna Hardwick, who has many publications on the topic, defined it as the ways in which Greek and Roman material has been transmitted, translated, excerpted interpreted, rewritten, reimagined, and represented. And you could even add remix to that. Why not? Because it shows up in music and music videos. In a visual sense, though, this could be modern tourists sketching Roman ruins, making a music video set in ancient Egypt, uh, drawing a comic book about daily life in a small Roman community, or an architect studying Greek architectural forms and including them in a modern building. There's lots of different ways that this can be part of what's being created in a modern context. So classical antiquity remains to be a really potent source of material for people to work with. Uh, Brianna, what was one of the earliest representations of classical antiquity in a television or film sense that you saw? Uh, it was definitely Disney's Hercules. I think that was 1997. That was one of the first times I saw the ancient world visualized so spectacularly. And it honestly triggered my interest in the ancient world. I owe Disney my current career trajectory. I don't know what that says about me, but I think it just especially for young children, it just illuminated in such a colorful way this completely far-removed world 
And yeah, it was just one of the, the first things that really introduced the ancient world to me. It wasn't Hercules for me. It was Clash of the Titans, That's the a- old one. One. Yeah, I watched that with my parents. Yeah, I absolutely love that one. Yeah, and it still stays with me. I know it's crap, but I still love it. But yeah, like neoclassical architecture, which I'm going to talk about, classical reception. So like all of it is classical reception. And to really get us to a place to discuss how and perhaps why modern creatives are remixing ancient source material into basically every type of media you can imagine, I'm going to first try and I use the term quickly, loosely, uh, discuss what are classics, you know, in air quotes, and why we view stuff as classical. It's a huge topic, but I'm going to try and condense as much as possible. And it's a weighted concept that implies a peak of achievement, that something is the best it could be. And all subsequent periods are somehow measured against it before and after. We'll never measure up to it. Um, but like, how did this happen? So the idea of classics or classical anything with a capital C refers to ancient and Greek Roman history, all of it. The term is obnoxiously flexible and could therefore literally refer to anything from, you know, the 8th century mythical founding of Rome by Romulus to the 5th century Athenian wars with Sparta to the takeover of Egypt by Romans in 30 BCE, uh, the reign of Diocletian, 3rd century, or even perhaps the 5th century when Roman monks led by St. Augustine spread the gospel to England. Classical. It's a lot. It's verbig. And what's pretty wild about this term is how it frames such a huge territory of land and scope of history. You can imagine it like every Greek city-state, every place conquered by the Romans, and then every single political entity that they came into contact with. It's a lot. (laughs) I hope listeners are sensing the scope of what it actually entails to say something is part of the Greco-Roman tradition or classical. Like it's enormous and it really can mean a lot. And I think what we'll find throughout our discussion is that there's an increased engagement, especially recently with classics and the more varied mediums and modes of expression that are indicative of a reclaiming really of antiquity by a broader, more diverse audiences, you know, kind of reclaiming it from its elitist Eurocentric tradition. And the reinterpretations or the reimaginings of it today, they don't shy from the realities of antiquity that often the elitist tradition tried to hide or basically deny. So they don't shy from the negative and the positive. They reinsert their previously overlooked, devalued, dehumanized, or even just completely hidden identities into the historical fabric of the ancient world, which is really fascinating. I think we'll be able to see quite a bit of that throughout your discussion. So with that having been said, there's clearly no homogenous identity that covers all of these periods and all of these places. Each culture and community and individual therein was neither aware of the classical past, quote unquote, they were living in at the time, nor necessarily viewed themselves as connected to any type of shared identity, despite cultural affinities like languages, gods, or literature. So with that being said, when do the artistic and intellectual traditions of the Greco-Roman period get transmitted again through Europe? Yeah, good good starting point. Again, huge topic. This is just a little iceberg tip. Um, but basically, the first thing to consider is that the idea of the classical past really emerges in the Renaissance. So around the 14th century, as a result of ongoing warfare that had been taking place from the 11th to 13th century crusades, these provided an ongoing flow of European elites over generations of warfare into the heartland of the Byzantine Empire, which had held on to a lot of the historic um, Roman and Greek texts and continued to keep them in their libraries. And these documents were held and protected, whereas in the Western Empire, they tended to be lost and not preserved. So there's a lot of 
European elites, you know, being exposed to to concepts and art and architecture and other forms of cultural sophistication they hadn't seen before. And so perhaps most importantly, with the collapse of the Byzantine Empire in the mid 15th century, um, a huge influx of Latin and Greek history and literature texts are brought with the Greeks who are fleeing the collapsing Byzantine Empire from the former Eastern Roman Empire. So the ideas that filled these books would take root in intellectual circles of basically the wealthy who could afford books. <laughs> and um, these ideas were brought with these forced migrants, really, fleeing conflict and integrated into educated elite circles. And Italy was an important focal point of this influx of refugees from the collapsed Byzantine Empire, though it's not the only place people took up residency, but it was... I want to say it's like a really receptive and fruitful place for the art and ideas of the ancient world to take on new meaning and relevance, obviously, because a lot of them came from there, you know, so you would have maybe had some of the evidence of some of the things these texts were talking about already in your small town, you could have had that. So there was a little bit of a touchstone to make them perhaps come alive a little bit more. So in this period, Italy was divided into small city states and territories with politically powerful families who consolidated their wealth into a variety of ways. For the purposes of our discussion, one of the most important ones was competitive displays of art and architecture, uh, because nothing really says big D energy like having a really nice facade to your house or really cool fresco in your chapel, like that kind of thing. So this was how you presented your status to your competitive peers. Very good example of that. In Florence, the Medici's, their art and architecture, the, what, you know, the past they drew on, and they basically used the classical past to say, we are at that level of superiority, if not better. Um, so yeah, if, if you're ever in Florence, you'll see that everywhere. <laughs> so the Medici's are actually a really, really interesting example because they are, of course, a hugely powerful politically connected family with members of their family in the church, mm -hmm. and the high ranking members of their family in the church, like popes. So these competitive displays of art and architecture don't stop with you know, domestic context or anything like that. The church is super interested in doing it too. So classical subject matter becomes really popular subjects for representation. For instance, and I know it's one of your favorites, Sandro Botticelli painted private commissions in the late 1400s. These depicted classical deities from myths and decorated elite homes. Listeners will be familiar with the birth of Venus, obviously, which is in the Uffizi Gallery, or potentially the Venus and Mars painting from the British Museum, both of which were possibly commissioned as wedding gifts and were some of the earliest classically themed paintings since antiquity. So these aren't examples for like, you know, a church meeting room, but the fact that somebody is spending a ton of money to have something represented like this as a huge wedding gift in some elite Italian family, the subject matter is becoming quite popular. And the church was also a great patron of the arts in this period, of course, commissioning Raphael in the early 1500s, who painted the School of Athens as one such example of classical reception of art. Uh, and it was commissioned to decorate the Apostolic Palace in the Vatican. And it represents the lineage of philosophy, which, despite the Christian context of the location, um, it depicts ancient pagan scholars who were clearly instrumental in developing the philosophies that influenced Christianity. Although, again, like how everybody viewed it at the time, obviously very different. But for some of the stuff that I had been researching myself, a lot of the finds that I had been looking at in Rome when it came to Egyptiaca, like cult of Isis in the Roman period, they actually came from contexts like this, where a Roman palazzo was being built uh, by some elite Roman family. 
and they were digging up the ground or destroying the old buildings that had previously been there or building, you know, grand churches or something. And the ground level in Rome's modern city is about 10 to 20 feet above the ancient levels. And that's a lot. So you can have a lot of cool ruins under that. And as these people were commissioning these brand new palazzos, they began discovering tons of classical art. So statues, busts, fragments of decorative architectural objects were discovered and integrated into rebuilding projects because they're like, oh, this is beautiful, ready-made art. <laughs> I'm going to stick it on the wall. Or they would build structures that would frame these things they found in the properties they now owned. And they also had a secondary effect of inspiring artists and draftsmen whose patrons were developing these palaces, who could incorporate the ancient sculptures and artifacts into the modern designs, which then echoed ancient architectural forms. So it was like a really interesting period of excavation, architectural development, and like a feedback loop between them. Like You find new thing, integrate new thing. Absolutely. So the collection of Cardinal Alessandro Farnese is one such patron whose palatial villa, the Villa Farnese, was an architectural reconfiguration of the Palatine Hill in Rome. And he integrated Roman ruins into his villa and his his property included one of the greatest collections of ancient sculpture since antiquity, which he commissioned fleets of artists and sculptors to, to restore and then frame elegantly in his estate. And that was including Michelangelo, who created little niches, like decorative niches to display some of these famous sculptures. Master artists were not just engaging in the classics to restore them, but these works of art were also inspiring their practice as well. You know, and there's examples from Hadrian's Villa as it was being discovered, taken and integrated into the Villa d'Est, which is very close by. So these were sort of like quarries almost for wealthy Italian families in this period. And as you can imagine, it's a very complicated process, but artists and patrons of the Renaissance were very much engaged in a process of classical reception. At the very moment, the idea of the classical past was being explored and creating new understandings of it that was shaped into the very concrete used to frame and display these pieces. So it's a really interesting moment. And Hardwick, again, she's an excellent scholar who focuses on classical reception. She says, the artistic or intellectual processes involved in selecting and imitating and adapting ancient works were also something to consider in how they were being displayed. So this process was at work in the courts of the Medici and other wealthy Italian families, and discoveries prompted engagement with materials in a new way that was going to be reimagined and adapted to the modern context. That sounds simple. <laughs> simple enough. So Leading into the Enlightenment period, then, there was already a few hundred years of exploring the classical past in the Mediterranean. So can you talk us through where the idea of a classical period and uh, neoclassical art comes into the picture? Yeah, absolutely. If the idea of a classical, quote unquote, period was formed in the Renaissance, then it would be within the Enlightenment that the idea of classics um, really takes shape. And to shamelessly condense an incredibly complicated topic... The Enlightenment is usually defined as falling within the 18th to 19th century and as a turning point in Europe when philosophical ideals for individual liberty, religious tolerance, and scientific exploration are freed from the absolutist control of kings and the church and they gain popular support. Done. Sounds good to me. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's within this period that the attribution of a Western civilization happens with its origins in ancient Greece, which is interesting because when you you know read Roman sources, Greece is the East. <laughs> You know, but for everybody in the Enlightenment period, yes, Greece is the, the the cradle of Western civilization. 
And simultaneously, this period is marked by contested lands for colonial expansion across the globe with new cultures in exploitative practices, let's say, uh, with wars being fought between the French, Portuguese, Russians, British, and Dutch to gain the upper hand on all the resources for their expanding empires. Like they want all of it. They're opulent. (laughs) So how does one reconcile those virtuous philosophical aims of a shared humankind and turn around and exploit people? Turns out very easily by looking to the classical past to justify their empires and looking at it through the lens of their current moment, but through a long durée of history, which is to say a long period without definition, really, to justify their actions and situating themselves in a continuum of conquest and empire that has its roots in the classical past. So one doesn't simply inherit the ancient history of a totally different cultural group into their own by accident. This process required first educating your ruling elite of the populace to embrace these ideas, as well as creating external projections to reinforce them. And if that sounds kind of highfalutin, it's basically you have to indoctrinate people to make them believe in the thing you're selling. And so boy, did they. Latin and Greek become part of the elite curricula, which founded the classical education that we see today. Now, there's a long history of Latin within churches, and these languages hadn't gone away, but for, it's not the 1%, but maybe the upper 20%, that kind of larger group of elites or would-be elites. So it's it's a larger audience, but still an elite audience. <laughs> Is that 1%? <laughs> That's my two cents. <laughs> Boston. But yeah, so classical education became emblematic of elite education for the next 200 years. And the problems with that should be fairly obvious. Access to this type of training was clearly not accessible to everyone, hence elite education. The understanding of classics, quote unquote, was really only for the wealthy, and it was reflected in their ideas of society, norms, and values, and used to reinforce them. So in concert with this education came the idea of a grand tour, which, I mean, if you watch Jeremy Clarkson's grand tour, it's not that kind of grand tour. They're not driving cars. They are taking a ton of money to have the time of their lives in their gap year, basically. Which maybe a gap year is the descendant of the Grand Tour. I'm not sure. And now that I think about it, maybe right? mine was grand. I was working. <laughs> yeah. I mean, no, exactly. Like I had a part-time job throughout, but like the Grand Tour was sort of an educational rite of passage for young men of primarily British elite families. And the places these young men would go to would be the Mediterranean. So Italy, Greece, France, Just to see these burgeoning art collections and the historic buildings and, you know, the ruins, because ruins are very romantic. And this is also the period of romanticism and romantic writing. So you could just get a whole lot of overlapping ideas about what the past meant to them. And then when they would internalize it, maybe write poetry in response to it or do little watercolors or buy pieces of it, that's them creating a new layer of interpretation with it. And according to Edward Gibbon, this process, the the Grand Tour was what completed the education of an English gentleman. You can imagine in the 18th century how many young English gentlemen or would-be gentlemen there were scamping about in the Mediterranean, becoming men. Hmm. (laughs) So the neoclassical art movement coincided with this emphasis on a classical education. So the 18th century, you have people seen firsthand for the first time, you know, maybe somebody from Sussex is sent off to Italy, and they are then exposed to this incredible history of beautiful and mysterious and, you know, heroic pasts that they can interpret as they will. And their education told them how they could interpret it. 
And this movement was fueled importantly by excavations in Pompeii and Herculaneum, which were happening at the same time. So elite collectors could go on their grand tour, check out real-time excavations in Pompeii, and then buy their own real pieces of the ancient past. And once they returned home, they could have their homes decorated like the rooms that were being excavated in Pompeii. Like it's a weird circular journey. And the principles of symmetry and simplicity within the arts aligned well with the rising interest in scientific rationality and enlightenment thinking. So you can't just focus on one thing because it's impossible to disentangle and parse out. Everything is so connected. It is a world system or like a an artistic world system at that time. But it's worth noting that the heartfelt embrace of the classical art did not extend to the late antique or archaic periods of art. Uh, instead, wealthy collectors and, you know, are architectural designers and people who are creating little books you, that you could take home with you or, or order in to have your living room done up like a, a Pompeian third style painting house or something. They preferred a version of the past which fit the narrative they wanted to convey, which is high imperial or classical Greece. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. When you think about classical art, you tend to, or at least non-specialists, I'll say, tend to think of you know, the beautiful white sculptures you see or ruins and things like that. But at the time and still today, there are people don't realize that these sculptures were painted. They were a very colorful, vibrant array of art. And so, as you said, you know, the choice to focus on the classical period when you did have kind of whitewashed sculptures already, it fit into that white elitist narrative. So that was definitely the one they chose, you know, convenient that they overlooked certain prior periods and periods after which were more coarse in some respects, but also had a greater variety of representation. And for that matter, the classical period and the late classical period also had a variety of representation. But again, because of just erosion and things like that, you don't see that. But again, there were still things that were overlooked. So I just keep picturing all those English gentlemen bouncing around the ruins and inserting themselves into the great history that was Greece and Rome. And I think that that attitude is, you know, it was a very pompous, it was a very an elitist attitude. And it was very much like Great Britain inherited that tradition. But, you know, what are the implications then on this small group of people with very privileged social statuses and a particular viewpoint for the field of classics? Yeah, that's, you know, really one of the most important questions. Viewpoints and, and you've alluded to this in a few other things you've said, too, like the viewpoints of many people were not expressed nor explored nor considered at all. Women, of course, viewpoints of women were not explored. LGBTQI obviously were not considered until very recently. And that's still a struggle. Uh, people of color, men and women from different classes, literally everyone but white men. And even the way that these men viewed themselves in the classical past, like they're imagining that, you know, when they hear about Pericles, they see themselves, you know, like they hear Alexander Great, they see themselves. So it's, it's a weird appropriation. So basically, those subjected by empire were never given the microphone or heroic space on canvas ever. With a small slice of society acting as gatekeepers to the past, a past that they appropriated for themselves and their aims, um, they could shape visualizations of that past to match the worldview they were wanting to create. And even if their actions were terrible, which when you're founding empire, they are inevitably going to be terrible, they could try and frame it in a heroic context. If we look at the art from this period, it's really illustrative of what's going on. 
So the art that emerged in the neoclassical period directly in the service of world empires is called empire style, unsurprisingly. And it was used to make direct allusions between current conflicts and those of the past to transpose the modern conflict into like a famous historic battle or event to be read in a similar lens. And I know some of what I'm going to say is really hard to visualize, but it actually makes a lot of sense if you're trying to frame what you're doing in a way that anchors it into something good and glorious and that, you know, your society is always going to be, mm-hmm, that is heroic. We, we all agree this is heroism. It's a very effective tool for propaganda or branding or however you want to think about it. I'm going to talk about quite a few pieces of art here. And again, podcast challenging medium to discuss art, but we've done it before on Two Friends Talk History and we'll do it again. We'll keep doing it. (laughs) So I will be including lots of imagery in the patron feed as well as on my archaeo artist blog so there'll be a blog accompanying this episode because there's just a lot to cover but these will be linked to in the social media so jumping in one of my favorite painters from this period who really defines the artistic and political movement of the time was jacques louis david because of how explicitly his work was used in the service of france's revolutionary ambitions and ultimately the terror (laughs) It went on a journey, like how his art was used and then what it was representing, mirroring the issues of the time really goes on a very visible sort of linear path. So David's art tracks alongside from breathless idealism of like, ah, the revolution's going to make everything better to the gritty outcomes of how it's not making everything better to a plea for reconciliation and conclusion once it's all gone to shit. And ultimately in the service of Napoleon once, once the terror had ended. Without knowing the historical context that these 18th century paintings were created in, it might be hard to understand why somebody in France would be painting Roman historic scenes and what was the audience meant to be taking away from this art. But, you know, fret not. The intended audience of these paintings were wealthy white men and they had a shared classical education. So they would have been able to understand what was being presented as they viewed it. There would be a familiarity with the classical images being portrayed and the stories that they were representing. For instance, the painting of the Oath of the Heretii, uh, painted in 1786, was painted in reference to Enlightenment values of anti-monarchist thinking. So getting rid of the monarchy. Uh, Monarchy is evil. It's tyranny. And so the Republican virtues are embodied in espousing to the citizenry a willingness to sacrifice themselves for the greater good of the state based on a 7th century BCE Roman story. David really dipped his brush in the historical Roman narratives by painting the lictors bring Brutus the bodies of his sons in 1789, whereby the founder of the Roman Republic, Lucius Junius Brutus, is presented with his sons who tried to overthrow the fledgling Republic for monarchy, and thus his own family is sacrificed to preserve the Republic. And it's heroic, it's noble, it's nudes... (laughs) We've got two phases of the revolution. So what story from the annals of Roman history can we use to diffuse intense civil war, challenging political situation? How about the intervention of the Sabine women painted in 1799, known as part of the founding myth of Rome? The Sabines were tricked into a delicate peace treaty after the men from Rome kidnapped the Sabine women to make them their wives. And the Roman men needed to populate their city. And in order to do so, they needed women from the nearby Sabine tribe. 
And long story short, the men get into conflict with the women's original families. And to save their fathers, husbands, sons, brothers, everybody, uh, the women put themselves in between the two sides and a peace is reached. And so David's paintings were used to project these idealized notions of patriotism, self-sacrifice, and then how to find a way to come together after your whole world has been ripped apart, basically. And he's done all of this in an imagined classical past. Like the architecture, the styles reference the classical past, but they're not accurate. (laughs) Um, It's really like French ideals of the classical past. So like the Instagram of the 18th century, French salons were filled with great works of art like David's and presented to these classically educated viewers who'd be discussing these paintings and understanding all of the mythical nuance and historical little subtext that was being painted into it. And these same people were shaping the political policies and trajectories of France and the militaries and the banks and everything. You know, it maybe morale was low that week and ah, you see this and you puff up your chest. Let's keep going. David's paintings are only one example of how classics, classical art could be used in the service of overt political messaging. And this was just one example of how they were being used widely. Yeah, I hope that makes sense. Oh, absolutely does. And, you know, speaking of that, it definitely reminded me of Edinburgh because obviously the classical education was in the UK, as we already touched upon, and that obviously extended to Scotland. And there was everywhere you look in Edinburgh, there's evidence of this classical education in the art and architecture. And then, of course, in the Enlightenment, Edinburgh was a hot spot for new ideas and scientific advancements. And they were all influenced really by this classical education. So I think as residents of the UK for many years, you're still over there, specifically Edinburgh, the capital city of Scotland, it's always rather striking to me how many classical elements are embedded really all over the city. So I think that's another good example and a good lead off from France is can you discuss Edinburgh and the Enlightenment and how it was designed to be really the Athens of the North? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you and I have shared countless walks through Edinburgh streets, looking at all the really interesting architectural features. The British were the dominant empire to come out of the 18th century into the 19th century, and they became the power brokers that placed themselves on equal footing with the Romans and freely and liberally borrowed imagery of the past to reaffirm that to themselves and to their subjects and the people like that their empire ruled. Many Scottish Enlightenment thinkers coalesced in the capital city of Edinburgh and formed like a really strong body of academic and political influence within Britain. As somebody who comes from British Columbia, place names in British Columbia are Scottish, basically. Hmm. And it's kind of interesting to have then moved over here and be like, oh, this is where all stuff comes from. Because so many businessmen and explorers and just really important members of the social elite of the UK's wealthy landed aristocracy or people who could finance trips and, and came from Edinburgh or came from Scotland, at least. And the neoclassical architecture that dots Edinburgh's topography is a really fascinating example of this Enlightenment architecture and classical reception in the 18th and 19th century context. There are a few wonderful landmarks that reflect this attitude of, you know, being the cultural inheritors of the classical past, which give a sense of how the Scots in the 1800s, 1900s viewed themselves within the context of this burgeoning capitalist and scientific shift in thinking. Financial institutions became decorated like temples, which, you know, there's a lot to read into that. Capitalists and industrialists get represented as bronze statues in, you know, city squares, like heroes of the past, alongside 
generals from the armies that were conquering new territories. And they just kind of create these spaces that depict the economic and colonial horizons of this, what I assume they thought was going to be an enduring empire. Well, so one of my favorite areas in Edinburgh is the intersection of the Royal Mile, where you have St. Giles Cathedral, which is one of our favorite cathedrals, I think. Uh, we've attended many a classical music performance in the bowels of the cathedral. By candlelight. <laughs> Romance. So the cathedral is on the Royal Mile, historic building, but it's encircled by all of these civic and governmental buildings. So the Edinburgh City Chambers and law courts and kind of all around it thereabouts and all of which are covered in greek egyptian and roman iconography unsurprisingly one of my favorites of course i love an alexander the great moment is a statue of a teenage alexander the great displayed in the courtyard of the city chambers uh, off the royal mile originally built as the royal exchange and the statue was formerly in St. Andrew's Square, but in the early uh, 20th century, they moved it to that area. But again, it sort of fulfills the same purpose, too. Like, it, it fits in. It's a quadrangle building with embedded Corinthian columns and a pediment above the door and Roman funerary vessel decor. Like, there's a lot going on there. Not all of it related. In the center of the courtyard is the statue of Alexander the Great. And he is in this fantastic apocryphal moment in his own narrative where he's taming the horse Bucephalus, who becomes like his bro-down war horse. And Bucephalus is wild and can't be tamed, and he's so scared. And what he, Alexander realizes is, after watching the horse, that he's he's agitated because he's afraid. And so his father, Philip II, says, okay, if you can tame the horse, he's yours. And so Alexander turns the horse's head away from his shadow because the sunlight is creating a shadow, scaring the horse. Everyone's like, oh, genius. But it's the perfect classical story to represent the shift in thinking that was happening in the period. Like they were they were seeking to use science and rationality to further their aims and commercial exploits and the progress of society and development and whatever. And so here is this moment in a classical story where fear and superstition and uncertainty is overcome by rational thought. So yeah, it's just to show the limitations of irrational thinking kind of thing. So it's it's a genius statue, really well done. So that's one area in Edinburgh. There's also the Dome, which is now a glitzy restaurant bar that had its beginnings as the headquarters of the Bank of Scotland. It was designed with neoclassical architectural features like a rectangular temple structure raised on a podium, front portico with a triangular pediment on top, some Corinthian columns, like it really is ticking all the boxes. And again, associated with banking and financial success. On Calton Hill, which overlooks Leith and Prince's Street, is the National Monument of Scotland, which commemorates the fallen Napoleonic Wars. You might be surprised to find out this partially finished monument was modeled after the Parthenon in Athens because it is missing a lot of it. But they did what they could. They shot their shot. Construction began in the late 1820s until money ran out, which garnered it the unfortunate nickname of Scotland's Folly or Edinburgh's Disgrace. Now it's still one of the favorite haunts for people to take photos and selfies. So, I mean, who's laughing? If you'd like a little bit of like a side of controversy and tea, in 1822, the one of the leading men campaigning for this monument to be modeled after the Parthenon was Thomas Bruce, the seventh Earl of Elgin, who is that Earl of Elgin, who had absconded with the literal Parthenon marbles and brought them to Britain where they remain for now. He he really had a, a thing for the Parthenon, and maybe it sort of serves him right that it was never finished. In Edinburgh, like London, 
museums, government buildings, apartment buildings, and civic art monuments frequently contain really overt references to the classical world, uh, like the Edinburgh Law Courts, the National Art Gallery. They're they're covered in sphinxes and Egyptiaca. And Brianna, you have been patiently on so many fieldwork journeys with me over the years as I've researched Egyptiaca, which is Egyptian-looking referencing art and architecture in relation to the Egyptian cults of Greco-Roman cities. And you will not be surprised to hear that I have saved the best for last. There are a number of Egyptian-influenced architectural and decorative elements in Edinburgh as well. Are there? (laughs) There's a few that are cool, and there's some graveyards from the 1800s and early 1900s use Egyptian referencing stuff, which makes sense given the association with Egyptian funerary things. But uh, there are a number of Egyptian-influenced architectural and decorative elements in Edinburgh. The Political Martyrs Monument on Calton Hill is a 90-foot obelisk built in the late 18th, early 19th century on old Calton burial grounds. So even though obelisks have actually nothing to do with the dead, per se, but the association with Egypt and the dead does, and especially in a received classical past. So you tend to find uh, tombs and funerary monuments that have used Egyptian architectural elements because that is what was associated with it in the British mindset at the time. So this is all just scratching the surface of Edinburgh's neoclassical past, let alone any other city that was flush with uh, colonial cash at this period in time. That is hopefully not too convoluted summary of how a very narrow group of people came up with a concept called classical and presented their version of the past to the world and started teaching it like it was fact. And this is what brings us to issues that we're dealing with now. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you say elegant and it's a trigger for a lot of people, especially people in the field. And I think, you know, it's very good that you brought it up, though, because that brings up a very good point. You know, how has the idea of classics been misused and abused? As somebody who studies classics, it is so important to understand how this stuff gets used now, as well as how it was used then. So in the 18th century, alongside all of these really cool architectural things and art and jaunts to the Mediterranean and sipping tea on the Tiber, these advances in science and technology and sweet, sweet capitalism, classical art was being weaponized in the service of colonism to help create the foundations of ideas about cultural superiority that were being argued by colonizers to justify the wholesale trafficking of enslaved people. And again, I'm describing a statue in particular in the historic artistic documents, and I will add links to this. A very famous statue that kind of embodies this whole topic is the Apollo Belvedere. It is a statue of a standing larger than life-size Apollo in contraposto. So he's kind of shifting weight from one leg to another, his arms outstretched, he's holding his bow, and he's got this beautiful curled hair piled atop his head. He is, you know, he's in his peak physical form, his beautiful face. Like it is, it is truly an exquisite piece of, of sculptural art, no question. This statue has been viewed as almost emblematic of the the absolute height of enlightenment ideals. Like Apollo is viewed in antiquity as a rational god, as compared to something like Dionysus, who's all about letting go of one's inhibitions and overindulgence. Apollo is the god of medicine, poetry, prophecy, healing. Like he does a lot of good stuff. Can I just interject? Because uh, so Apollo, of course, is as a sun god, is a perfect symbol of the enlightenment as well, enlightenment. So I think there's also that as well. (laughs) I love it. I didn't even make that connection. (laughs) So I am here. (laughs) That's right. So 
He epitomized the ideal aesthetic of Western European beauty. Within the elite circles and scholars and art critics who are all promoting this statue as the truest form of Western European perfection, one problem with that is that they did so with the statue that no longer had its true colors. You know, as you said, these colors faded in time. All that was remaining, if anything was remaining, would have been super faded and not really indicative of what it was. It no longer had its true colors. So the vibrant tones that would have been painted on and displayed with were gone, like wild patterns, eye-popping colors, painful to look at, juxtapositions of things that just shouldn't be together, but yet were. That all was gone. And what they were displaying was just a polished, pretty, white, unfinished, technically speaking, statue of this 20-something young, handsome god. And it's something young, elite men could look at and see themselves in, one would presume. So there's this famous image that I'm going to include in the blog and other resources where the Apollo Belvedere statue is used to highlight the differences between white races and others through this bogus pseudoscience of craniology developed by the American physician Samuel Morton. Samuel Morton taught a surgeon and anthropologist, Josiah Knott, and an Egyptologist, George Glidden. They trained with Morton and they wrote this book called The Types of Mankind, which they argued, among other crazy things, that God created different races within a hierarchy of sophistication and development, using the image of Apollo Belvedere as their proof to represent white people, set against super racist imagery of a black man, then an ape. Obviously stupid and wrong, but work like theirs was, among others, were some of the key foundational works for the scientific racism that was being used to entrench racist ideologies and legal policies that allowed for the system of enslavement in the U.S. So the Apollo Belvedere continues to be a pretty potent rallying symbol for white nationalists. Uh, He showed up at January 6th in uh, Washington, D.C. in 2021, um, among other images of Greco-Roman history. So like you got a lot of helmets, you get a lot of like swords and like SPQR, you know, like a lot of imagery that's very obviously based on ancient things, though Lord knows how they think what they're using means. And it shocked the world to see the audacity of these people doing what they were doing, trying to overthrow a government. But they were also using images of these ancient cultures that they were suggesting by wearing them were part of their movement. I don't know, it's it's truly messed up. It would be a stretch to argue that all these people wearing these symbols were employing you know, associations of white supremacy on purpose, because obviously I can't know that, but we have to be mindful of what's implied and implicitly and implicitly when you wear this stuff. Um, And many of the people attending the rally were consuming a ton of racist rhetoric. So it could be inferred that there was some degree of understanding that this stuff, again, in a new light, in a new historical context, stood for white supremacy again. Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, January 6th as an American is something that I have a lot of difficulty reconciling and you bring up the racist rhetoric and we already discussed previously about the indoctrination of this classical education, which does have negative impacts. The January 6th riot with people using these kinds of symbols is a good example of that. Um, To what degree they knew what they were, you know, re-representing, let's say, that's debatable. I question the level of education of some of them, frankly. It's an interesting question to ask, but then it brings up the question of, you know, how do we counter these narratives then? It's tricky, right? Because you don't want to be the gatekeeper yourself of who gets to use what. But while we can't prevent people from weaponizing history, we can provide alternatives and continue to imagine different ways to think about ancient Greece and Rome. 
in the present day. So there's lots of different ways we can engage with the material and popularize it and make it the foundations for films and books and, and comics and everything. And that's a responsible approach to dealing with the ancient past. And if reception studies are the artistic or intellectual processes involved in adapting ancient work, then modern scholars and practitioners do have a responsibility to continue to consider what the evolving meanings behind these images are and how they're being appropriated and what you're doing with them as a creator. This brings us perfectly to modern explorations of classical receptions. I do mention the negatives that are associated with classical tradition and classical reception, but there are so many incredible, cool things that are happening with classical reception studies and, you know, people engaging in classics right now. Many modern reinterpretations of ancient sources provide exciting examples of classical reception, where there's an artist or an author who takes the material and they change the perspective or the narrative to start from a different viewpoint, a less represented viewpoint. And many popular fiction writers are exploring these perspectives through the lens of women in classical stories and opening up further interest in classics for the public. Really interesting to see how else were other people in this narrative experiencing these moments. So this opening up of classics to different perspectives allows people to engage with it in a greater degree across more diverse backgrounds. And classics are really being reimagined in many forms of media and presenting a diversity in educational materials as well that help us enrich the way classics is presented to the mainstream. And this is something that's really important to me because I think I want to democratize classics. I don't want it to be the purview of the elite and continue to be gatekeepers of it. I think classics is truly for all, and it's finding ways to get it to people through different mediums. So one of the things I'm going to conclude this episode with uh, for part one is comics and classics. And, you know, you have been a big part of that with me. We've gone on quite a lot of drawing journeys. You came with me for some of my field work to do the Iclanum comic. Uh, Vita Romana at the Baths of Iclanum for the Appline Project and the University of Edinburgh and great museum sketching things and you're champ. I was your pretty much your bodyguard for a yes, lot of it. Yes, you were. Classics almost like given new life in the comic form through a number of artists. There's really exciting webtoons out right now. There's Laura Olympus by Rachel Smythe. That is incredibly popular. She is probably the biggest name in classical reception through comics at the moment. And, you know, her her story is a retelling of the Hades and Persephone myth through a modern lens using modern representations and ideas and technology and like ideas of consent and, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. So it's a really fresh and new way to explore myths that we're all pretty familiar with. And it's given rise to other comics, other webtoons that are even becoming published as well by uh, Linda Sedgick. Uh, there's Punderworld, which also looks at the story of Hades and Persephone, but again, quite differently. What I think is a consistent thread between the two is that both of the uh, Persephones are individuals with full agency. They're in full understanding and they're able to express their own desires and sexual awakenings and all this good stuff. Uh, Hades is often seems to be represented as a bit of a, a romantic figure in these stories who's respectful of ideas of consent. And he's basically presented as the good guy. So, I mean, there's these examples. There's lots of comics coming out of Italy. There's really good graphic artists, especially in Naples, who are interacting and engaging with the classical past through comics and uh, graphic novellas and things. So there's a lot of really interesting things happening. And 
this type of work really inspired me. I started to think of how can I get into engaging with the classical world, but not just with mythology, but you know, for my interests, I'm quite interested in material culture and religion, social history, and that kind of stuff. So one of the things that I've been working on is a webcomic, a webtoon called Ritualia, and which is sort of the objects used in ritual practices. And the premise of it is taking material culture that's real and has been excavated and we we know something about and using the images depicted on it to pull out a narrative about the object and its historical context and how it might have been used in a ritual practice or where it fit into the landscape or who were the people involved just to create a, a peopled ancient history so it's not just a static object history if that makes sense and in 2020 i was awarded the british school of athens artist award for travel to go to athens spend a couple weeks and do research and I was really doing a bunch of field research using their library, but also go to all the museums I could find that had imagery that was useful to the first chapter of my of this Ritualia comic that I'm developing, you know, recreating landscapes and clothing and buildings from the ancient world. Because of the BSA's generous funding, I was able to go and do a deep dive into this stuff and then place myself within the landscape that I'm going to be representing. And each chapter is intended to take on a different object, a different material, and then explore the world through it. So the first one was based on doing illustration work of the Promenos face, which was found in southern Italy, though it was created in Athens in the late 4th century. And it depicts, you know, a Dionysic revelry of actors, but also religious ritual and all this stuff. So it was, I was just kind of interested to explore it and see what kind of narrative I could pull out of it and what could it be telling us about Athens in this period. So I'm just very grateful that I was given the opportunity from the BSA to do that. And moving forward, it'll be really interesting to try and find ways to disseminate this comic aside from on Webtoons, but also resources, additional activity sheets and stuff like that, because I think... Another part of engagement is getting a piece to take home with you. And comics are an awesome teaching tool for young people, but as well, older people. That's one of the sort of exciting things I am thrilled to be working on right now and as an ongoing project. So I really encourage listeners, if you're interested, you can search Ritualia on Webtoons or on my website, archaeoartist.com. There's a link to that in the menu bar. So well, I was just going to say, well, what's great as an audience to these types of comics and especially Ritualia, you know, it's personal to me as well because you're drawing it and I've witnessed you drawing it. <laughs> <laughs> and as well as, you know, things like Lore Olympus, as someone who studies classical art, it's so interesting and actually just fun, really, to see the ancient world, especially the iconography I study or, you know, the vases and the sculptures and things like that come to life in a new way because when you study it it's static a lot of the times it's in a museum behind glass you can understand how it would have been used in context and you can visualize it in your head but it's very different for me at least to see it visualized in a comic where there's motion and emotion and there's realistic portrayals of how objects were used. You know, there are some liberties taken, but that's just the artist's prerogative. And I fully support that, especially as it's a reinterpretation or it's a way of expressing themselves through classical art. So for me, these comics, I just love them. I think they're fascinating. I think they're beautiful. I think it's really interesting to see how modern artists are reinterpreting these objects and to some respects, staying true to the classical tradition 
not to use an overused <laughs> expression, but also adding their own spin on it. So for me, I love seeing it. I think it's really exciting to see these things in not such a static perspective where I can, can almost connect with the art in a different way. In part two, Dr. King and I will look at how classics are being reclaimed by performers, writers, filmmakers, and artists to see how the past is being engaged with by a broader segment of society and how there is more diversity in who is creating these narratives of history and art and what classics are being used for, creating almost like a renaissance of classical studies right now and you know media that we can explore. So I'm really excited to jump into part two of this discussion about classical reception. I just want to thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. King. I'm really excited for us to share part two with listeners. Well, I'm really looking forward to it as well. I think you did an excellent job of reviewing a really complicated topic in a short time frame, really. And so I think when we bring it to the examples in part two, which I'm also very excited about, I've been looking forward to talking about these for a while. Can I give a little preview? Please, yes. Give us a taste. I'll be discussing classical reception in music videos, most recently by Lil Nas X in his music video for Montero, Call Me By Your Name, as well as Lizzo featuring Cardi B and the music video for Rumors. And we'll also be talking about film and television, including the, I believe it's 1979 film Caligula, which is throwing it back a bit, but I'll explain why, as well as the Stars series Spartacus, which I discuss in my upcoming publication, which you mentioned earlier. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. And I think we'll have a, a lot of good banter on that. All right, so we're going to be bringing everybody with us into the modern cultural moment of classics. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Dr. King, and thank you listeners for tuning in. I hope you'll join us again for part two, where I will be interviewing Dr. King this time on her work in classical reception and multimedia. If you have not already done so, please rate and review Two Friends Talk History on Apple Podcasts. It takes just a second and helps people find the show. Don't forget to hit subscribe or follow on whatever platform you listen to so you never miss an episode. So thank you again for listening, and I hope you guys tune in next time. See you soon with new friends on Two Friends. Two Friends.